Um, I spent a great deal of time studying these two subjects in itself. I read Old Testament scriptures. I read commentary after commentary. And I know in our questions, one word they said was failure when they were describing Ahaz, right? Well, I found another word after I wrote those questions. And it was over and over in almost every single commentary I read, I read the word darkness. And one commentary was even entitled Ahaz, the darkness before the dawn. And they were talking of the dawn being his son, King Hezekiah, who was a better guy, right? But there were so many other ones that even talked about that he was the dark and wicked king. You know, have any of you ever been in, in a bright room and all of a sudden all the lights go out? You know how, just how disoriented you get when you're in complete darkness? Instantly, right? Your hands go up and you take these little shuffly steps and you're trying to feel for things. And then all of a sudden your eyes kind of start to adjust just a little bit and you might see some things that you kind of recognize but they don't look right, right and you're not sure if you're seeing what you're really seeing. Does that make sense? Well, I live in Ridgemar and we lose our electricity probably seven, eight, nine times a year. I don't know why. But our little five houses on my little block are the first to lose it and the last to get it back. And a lot of times this happens right in the middle of the night. And I'm one of those people that sleeps so light that if my husband's pattern of breathing changes or if your child is standing here staring at you on the side of the bed, instantly I'm wide awake trying to figure out what's going on. I don't sleep through anything. So when the electricity goes off, I don't know why, but I always shoot straight up in the bed and I'm trying to adjust my eyes, what's going on, because it gets completely black and I think it even gets completely quiet. And, and that's what's, that probably is what wakes me up. And I'll sit up, and this happened to me just back in August, back in that time when I don't like Texas. Boom, all the lights go out in the middle of the night. I shot straight up in the bed, and I'm, of course, doing this. And I look out, and my eyes start to adjust just a little, and I see something that looks kind of like a big, huge, menacing figure. It's standing at the foot of my bed, and I am terrified. My heart is racing. My heart's pounding. So I reach for my flashlight, now, some of you might say, why didn't you tap your husband on the shoulder? But he's the deep sleeper. So I knew my chances are better with the flashlight. So I grab the flashlight, and I fumble around, and I shine it on my would-be attacker. And guess what? It was the goofy traction machine that my husband bought about three years ago that we used maybe ten times in the last three years. And that was when the kids hadn't been at Six Flags, and they needed to be upside down a little bit, so we spin them on this thing. And we also hang clothes on it. And that's the very reason it looked like this big man standing at the end of my bed. But you see how I was so disoriented in this darkness? And then my eyes started to adjust a little bit, and I still had a hard time just to start figuring out what was real around me. I couldn't discern what anything was, and it caused me to make some goofy decisions in my head that I thought I was going to have to kill somebody at the foot of my bed. You know, and for some of us, you know, even just dim lights, you know, some of us maturing people in the room, just going to a trendy restaurant can cause disorientation, can't it? <laughs> Try to order even at lunch on a menu in a trendy restaurant. The lights are all down. I put my cheaters on. I'm still holding the candle like this, or it's up by this. I'm scrambling for just a little bit of light just so I can see what I'm gonna, the decisions I'm going to make. It's crazy, I know. You know, I did a little research on 
the effects of prolonged darkness on the body. This is really interesting. You know, not only will it cause you to do these crazy things with your hands and walk funny, but if you're cast into darkness for a long period of time, did you know that you can lose complete sense of time and space? It can cause you to start hallucinating, and eventually it can make you crazy. It causes insanity. I think we might be on to something when they were talking about the darkness of Ahaz. I think we might be on to something, don't you think? But apparently not only will total darkness leave you disoriented, I read that going without periods of light can cause you to, um, to, to grasp on the things that you can't, you'll, you'll reach out for things and they, they lose, they hallucinate, all these crazy things that can happen. I think in Ahaz's case, he wasn't actually in total darkness. But I think, like one commentary said, he was a king literally devoid of religion. Wow, I don't want that said about me ever. Do you? And then they went on, they described him as that dark and wicked king. And you know, I even read that he is the only king listed in the Chronicles that not one redeeming quality is listed. That is really bad. He is a bad, bad dude. And you know what? I would have to say, too, he's probably not the brightest bulb in the pack. Would you agree? I think we're on to something here. I think he probably put the duh in Judah. Don't you think? (laughs) We had all these great kings. And then while we have all these great kings, we have Ahaz in the middle of all this. Because, you know, before this, Judah was in a lot of prosperity. You know, in 2 Chronicles, let's go back. Let's talk about what some decisions he made. In 2 Chronicles 28, 1 through 4, it says, and it's on your verse sheet, it says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. That might explain some of it. I've got a 20-year-old in my house. And he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Now, unlike King David, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and he made cast idols to worship the Baals. He burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnon and sacrificed his son in the fires. He followed the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places, on the hilltops, and under every spreading tree. You know, the Bible makes it very clear this guy was walking in some significant spiritual darkness. Seems like it had been going on for quite some time, long enough at least that it had started to affect the way he was making decisions, right? Seems that Ahaz had moved out of, away from the truths of God, and he was kind of taking whatever felt good at the time. Now, before he ascended to the throne, as I was saying, Judah was experiencing quite a bit of prosperity. In fact, it started back with King Uzziah, and it, was, it continued through with King Jotham, and Isaiah even says at that time that the, there was no end to the treasures, that the hills were filled with horses and the chariots could not be counted. They were thriving. But, enough, but after King Ahaz reigned for only 16 short years, all of that had changed. All of that had changed. They were being attacked by their enemies. Thousands and thousands of these people were dying and all their national treasures were being plundered. You know, the results of his poor decisions had allowed the, the, the nation of Judah, the thriving nation of Judah, to be attacked and humbled. And in a sense, Ahaz and, of course, everybody under him was reaping what he had sowed. You know, the results of a leader that doesn't base their, their decisions on the truths of God 
it leads to a lack of faithfulness and holiness in their followers, doesn't it? And when those people go to that place, they begin to act out in desperation and in darkness, and they, they lose their discernment. And that's exactly what we see. When we make decisions out of fear and desperation, there are rarely any good results out of that, right? And that's where we are in the case of Ahaz. It says in 2 Kings 16:7 that Ahaz sent for messengers to the king to King Assyria of Assyria. He said, "I am your son and your servant. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel who is attacking me." Now, did anybody find this interesting? This guy was saying, "I, I, and they're attacking me. Come save me." He's the king of a nation, okay? This guy was so self-absorbed and so inwardly focused on himself, he couldn't look past his own safety and security to even say they're, take, they're, they're attacking the nation of Judah. Now, this is a horrible trait in anybody, but it is an especially bad trait when you're a leader in anything. It says, um, it seems that Ahaz had started to govern his life by this artificial, his life by this artificial light. And that was his own pride, his own understanding, and not on God's understanding and God's truth. And it had caused him to act and make decisions out of fear and desperation. You know, when I was doing that other study about the prolonged, uh, effects of prolonged darkness on the body, I found one article that was really, really interesting to me. And it talked about the effects of artificial light on the body. And this was very interesting. But not only was it interesting, the spiritual, as- the spiritual parts of it were very hard to miss. It ran parallel. They were saying that the light bulb was, was invented around, say, 1879 by Thomas Edison. Now, some of you little history nerds out there that are going to try to call me on this, you might say, no, it was 1878 or 1854, whatever. I can't remember, but they're using 1879 because that's when the light bulb was actually patented. So that's what they're going with. They said, and that's actually when people got light bulbs. So he goes on to say that before the introduction of the light bulb, that the lives of humans seem to be governed by natural light and darkness. And that I'm going to interject, they actually didn't say this, but I'm going to inject, I would say that's God-given, right? Light and darkness. They go on and they say that after the introduction of the light bulb, the lives of humans began to be governed by unnatural light. Okay, but then they said, researchers have since found that although the light bulb is credited for bringing the humans out of darkness, it also may be responsible for a multitude of illnesses like the common cold or the flu or even some types of cancer and bad illnesses. And they say that's because we place unnatural stresses on our wake and sleep cycles. You know, I think we might be on to something here. And then the last line in this whole article said this, and this is what blew me away. It says, the root of the problem seems to be that unnatural light spawns unnatural behaviors. It says, unnatural light spawns unnatural behaviors. I think these scientists have hit that nail right on the head. Don't you agree? Now, I hope you see these spiritual parallels. You see the root of Ahaz's problem seems to be that he had started also to bask in the glow of these unnatural lights. Because remember back in Second Chronicles, it said that he, he walked in the ways of kings of Israel, but what else did he do? He cast idols to worship Baal. In other words, he was mixing unnatural light with natural light, and what did the scientists say that caused? Unnatural behaviors. 
And so then we read in 2 Kings 16, 7 that he started, he cried out to man instead of crying out to his heavenly father. You know, he cried out to the unnatural light, the king of Assyria to save him, instead of calling out to his heavenly father, his natural light to save him. It's obvious that this unnatural light was causing him to act out with unnatural behaviors. It goes on and says in 2 Chronicles 28, 22, and 23, it says, In his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. He offered sacrifice to the gods of Damascus who had defeated him, for he thought, and listen to this logic, since the gods of the king of Aram have helped them, I'll sacrifice to them so they will help me. But they were his downfall, it says, and the downfall of all of Israel. His fear, desperation, and lack of discernment had caused him to make poor decisions as a king of Judah. And this led the nation of Judah into one of the bleakest times in the history of God's chosen people. You know, we're all in positions of authority. I don't care if you work in politics or if you teach a Sunday school class or you're a mommy with a baby in the house. We all are over le in leadership over something or someone. I think there's some questions we need to ask ourselves. Are we leading people toward God? Or are we leading them away from God? Are we allowing our decisions to be made and through the natural light of God and His truths or through unnatural light, like self-help books or Oprah, for that matter, whoever that, that isn't on the Word of God? And, and are we making our decisions based on our own pride and our understanding or on the truths of God? It's important that we do this to remain steadfast and stand firm in stressful situations. We have to trust God's Word, and we have to trust the character that's revealed in God's Word. And you know what? There's only one way to do that, right? We have to read the Word of God. We have to read it every single day, not just on Sunday morning when Ted says, open your pew Bibles to page whatever, and not just on Thursday morning when we tell you to have your Bibles open so we can go through it every single day. We have to be in God's Word so we know God's character and we know who we're placing our trust in. That's the only way you can do it. One of our leaders in leaders meeting, and I tried to get them to fess up to who it was, said something a couple weeks ago that I absolutely loved. And we were talking about um, how in stressful situations, God will, or the Holy Spirit will place Scripture on your heart that it will encourage you and comfort you. But she said this. She said, we should spend time on the Word of God so that God, so the Holy Spirit has something to work with. I mean, that's great food for thought. We've got to give him something to work with, don't we? Now remember, Ahaz had led this nation, this thriving nation, into the bleakest times in the history of God's chosen people. But seriously, we know God is not just about judgment and woes and wrath, is he? He's also a God of hope and a God of promise. And so, enter stage left. We have this little ray of light, and his name is Isaiah. And if you remember, a couple weeks ago, we talked about Isaiah and that he had um, confronted, been confronted with God's holiness, and because of that, his sin had been revealed to him, right? Do you remember when Deb talked about that a couple weeks ago? And he cried out, Woe is me! I am ruined! He's like he's saying, I should be dead. But God so graciously cleansed him. But what did he do next? He instantly gave him a message, didn't he? He said, you need to take this to King Ahaz. 
It is so vital, ladies, that we have a clear concept of God and his holiness before we can ever properly serve him or be effective in his kingdom. We have to understand the sinfulness of humanity and need for God's righteous judgment. And to do that, we have to first grasp the holiness of God. Because without that, we're just not effective. And Isaiah had done exactly that in chapter 6. And then he immediately was given this mission. Now, don't you think this was interesting? He said, he didn't say, now, in a few years, when you've studied up, Isaiah, I'm going to give you a mission. So go out there and get your little spiritual legs under you. No. He goes, here you go. Here's your message. I would have been like Bambi on ice, trying to get my little spiritual legs under me. I'm going to the king of Ahaz with this message. I, this is crazy. Now, this message wasn't so much the uh, good news, bad news message, was it? I would say that Isaiah was told by God to give the bad news, good news message. And he was to go to King Ahaz and tell him about the, the judgments on Judah if he didn't steer this, king, this, this kingdom into a different direction. So, that being the bad news, but we know our God and he gave us good news, didn't he? So he sent a good news message with that and he tells them that he would be sending a Messiah and he'd be serving a remnant of his people. So he put a little glimmer of hope in there. You know, if we're in Christ, and we too have been confronted with God's holiness and seen our own sin, we've confessed it, and we've been forgiven, you know what? We also have the bad news, good news message, don't we, ladies? You know, the bad news is we're sinners, and we deserve God's judgment and wrath. But the good news it's Jesus Christ. It's, it's the Messiah, just like it was for Isaiah. Don't you think that's interesting? I thought it was marvelous that Jesus was the answer way back there in that old, outdated Old Testament in Isaiah's message. And you see, it's our very message today in 2011. That's amazing to me. It should be amazing to you. And don't let anybody tell you that Old Testament is outdated. Because we know they're not telling the truth. It's crazy. Now, as much as I would love to just stop right here and put some of that music back on and just go on, I've got a mission, and we've got to work through all of these prophecies. So now we kind of know what was going on around us, right? So in the next few minutes, we're going to go through seven and, chapter 7 until 11 pretty quickly. I want you to fasten your seatbelts and hang on. I'm going to try to explain to you what these prophecies are saying in a clear, concise manner that if any of you little prophecy nerds out there know who you are, it's not me, you'll feel like you've little, dipped your little toes in the shallow end and you can race home and dive into this into more depth and you'll have a head start on it. But the rest of you, if you're like me, we're going to dip our toes in and then we're going to crawl out and we're going to go bask on the shores of chapter 12 because that's where the good stuff was for me. So hang on and we're going to try to get through this as quickly as possible. Okay, it starts out in chapter 7. And in 7, 8, and 9, we have three different prophecies that um, talk about that he's supposed to deliver to King Ahaz. They involve three different births of three different baby boys. Now, I read in one commentary that these prophecies have been called the now and not yet prophecies, meaning that um, some were fulfilled immediately or in their near future, and then some were going to be fulfilled in their distant future, in the, in the Judah, nation of Judah's future. So we're going to start in chapter 7. It opens with Isaiah and his son, and they're going to Ahaz, and God has told them to comfort him 
with uh, God's word, with his word. And he goes to him and he says in chapter 7, verse 4, he says, Say to him, be careful, don't be, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Don't lose heart, because those two smoldering stubs of firewood, those enemies that he's so fearful of, they're not going to be a problem. And so that's what they do. They go and they tell, they tell him, be careful. You know, and then he gives him these three comforting commands. And he says, keep calm, right? Don't be afraid and don't lose heart. You know, then he goes on to tell Ahaz that these enemies that he's so fearful of one day are not going to be an issue to him. It's not going to be a problem. But now in Ahaz's defense, he does have come some legitimate fears here, right? We talked a couple weeks ago that, that Debid said, you know, God divided the, the tribes and he had the southern and the, I mean, the northern and the southern, Right? And that he had told the, nor- the southern kingdom that the line of the Messiah that the king- would go through the kings of the southern kingdom. And so, I'm sure there was a little bit of hard feeling going on up here in the northern kingdom, right, with Israel. And Aram had kind of thought, well, we'll just hang on their coattails because we'd like to see Judah go down too. So what they were planning on doing is they were going to attack Judah, divide it, and they were going to insert their king into that Davidic line so they could be in that Messiah. The line of the Messiah. Now, let me put that one other way. They were planning to thwart God's plan. Now, ladies, seriously, from experience, this never goes well. <laughs> I've spent 47 long years trying to do this kind of thing, and I'm finally learning this is not going to go well. And it doesn't. And you know, and if Ahaz and his people, the people of Judah, had truly believed in God's promises and, and, and lived their lives out proving it, they wouldn't have reacted with such fear in the face of these threats. Instead, they would have made all their decisions based on the fact that our God's promises cannot be thwarted. And he promised us the King, the Messiah would come through our line. They would have not, would not rejected this, but... That's the fairy tale version, and we're back in Isaiah. And Ahaz, of course, rejects Isaiah's message. <clears throat> so Isaiah goes on. He says, he tries to get him to ask God for a test. Okay? Now, Isaiah was coming from God to tell him this, so I feel pretty safe that God wanted him to test him, right? But Ahaz, he says in 7:11, he says, Ask the Lord for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. And then in 7:12, Ahaz says, I will not ask, I will not test the Lord. Isn't it interesting how astute we can sound when we're trying to not believe God? I mean, I will even do, like him, quote scripture, mostly incorrect because I can't memorize very well. And secondly, out of context, just to make myself feel a little bit better about my disobedience. Just like Ahaz is doing here. And, and then in chapter 7, verse 13, Isaiah goes on and he tries to remind Ahaz of the promise of God to the southern kingdom. He starts out, he says, Hear now, O house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of God also? You know, it's almost like Isaiah had taken Ahaz by the hand and he goes, Come on, man, work with me here. You know, focus. Don't you remember the Davidic line and the kings of Judah and the Messiah? Does any of this sound familiar to you? Listen, listen. Of course he's not. So Isaiah dives right into his next thing, and that's to drive his message home. He starts his prophecy, and that's in 7.14. And then 7.14 he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. You know, it's almost like he was saying, I never want to hear this. If I've been asked to ask for a sign by God, I'm going to do it. 
Because here he was saying, here's your sign. Here's your sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. This is confusing. What are they talking about? This is actually part of that now and not yet prophecy I was telling you about earlier, okay? It's important to consider its significance right here with Ahaz and the house of David, but it's also important to consider where it's recorded in Matthew 1, 23, where it says the virgin will be with child, will give birth to a son, sound familiar, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, this prophecy had immediate fulfillment in the days of Ahaz, but it had yet another fulfillment in their future. We have the beauty of being in 2011. We can look back and see where both of them were fulfilled in this prophecy. Now, the prophecy that starts in 714 is actually that one I was telling you where they have the three babies, right? I told you three baby boys that were going to be born. And the first one we find in 714 is a baby boy named Emmanuel. Now, there were several interpretations of this, but the one that sounded the most reasonable and the one I'm going to run with here was one that said that this virgin, who the Hebrew word for this was maiden or young girl, not like you're instantly thinking when I say the word virgin, but this young girl would be known by Ahaz somehow. It could possibly even one person said in their commentary, could possibly even been one of his own wives, okay? But she was going to give birth to a son, name him Emmanuel, and by the time he was two or three years old, those two would-be enemies in the north would not be an issue anymore. So, by having this child probably running around his own courtyard, right? He knew him. This would be a glaring reminder to him, to him that he was being disobedient. He knew what he had been told. Then we go on and we see in, sec- in the second one is in chapter 8, verse 3 and 4. And this is that crazy name, the birth of a baby boy named Meharshalah Hashbaz. Now, this happens to be the longest name in the Bible. And because of that, I'm going to call this guy Baz on the way out because it would take forever to say that. And I need all the minutes I can have right here. So Baz was born, and he was going to be born to um, Isaiah's wife. She was a prophetess, okay? And his name meant quick to plunder, swift to the spoil. It was actually a battle cry that the armies would, would yell out as they were going in to attack their enemies. So... You know, it kind of fit with what was going on at this point. But she gave birth to this son, named him Baz. And like in the previous prophecy, he was told, they were told that by the time this child was two or three years old, those two, king, those two would-be enemies from the north would no longer be a problem. So you see, not only did Ahaz have one glaring reminder running around his courtyard or somewhere that he knew, he's going to have two. And I can guarantee you, ladies... If I gave birth to a son in Fort Worth, Texas, and named him this, within 30 seconds, the world would know it with the Internet. So I can guarantee you, back in Ahaz's day, in two or three years, everybody in town knew about this boy, right? So Ahaz knew this child, and it was another glaring reminder that he was out of God's will. Now, the third baby we see, it's found in um, chapter 9, verse 6. And this baby, this prophesied baby, was involved the birth of a baby boy who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. In one word, it's... Exactly. It's Jesus. Don't you feel like you're in kindergarten? When you get to go, Jesus, it's Jesus. Because that's so, you know, it's easy like that. 
But I thought it was so cool. Here's chapter 9, and he's telling us about Jesus and how he's going to be coming. And the verse, the last verse of chapter 8 said this. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. I mean, don't you just feel like you ought to have a bloodhound? I mean, it's just like depressing stuff. But the first word in chapter 9, where they tell us about Jesus, guess what the word was? It's beautiful. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. It says, there will be no gloom for those who are in distress. It's Jesus, right? Kindergarten, Jesus. Yay. No more gloom, no more distress. And then Isaiah goes on and he predicts the not yet part of this, the distant future portion of this prophecy, and he predicts the second coming of Christ. And in verse 7, he gives Ahaz, uh, he predict, I'm sorry, predicted Messiah, and he goes on and he does the not, not yet, or the distant, distant future, and that was the second coming of Christ. And that was in verse 7. You see, the first two births prophesied were only the partial fulfillment of this prophecy. But the third birth, Jesus, is a completed prophecy. It completes this prophecy in the birth of Christ. Now, I would have liked to stop right here, too. This is a great stopping place, but we've got to go to chapter 12. And the next two chapters are just full of gloom and doom. We fast forward up to chapter 10, and it prophesies that because of their pride and their failure to acknowledge God's sovereign power, Assyria, who God had used as his weapons stick, his rod of judgment, they were going to be destroyed. And Deb's going to talk about that in a few weeks, so you'll know a little bit more about it. Um, then he goes on and um, he prophesies the judgment of Judah, of their continuing disobedience and of continuing, uh, continuing to rebel against God. But then it's, there it is again. He offers that little glimmer of hope, doesn't he? He offers this little glimmer of hope. And Isaiah prophesies that God will preserve a remnant of his chosen people. And it's there to comfort them. In 11.1, he speaks of the shoot that will come out of the stump of Jesse. We, we learned that Jesse was King David's father, right? And out of the shoot from its roots would come a branch that bears much fruit, and that is, yeah, it's Jesus. We're in the Old Testament, and they tell it's not relevant. It's Jesus all over the Old Testament. I just love it. I loved it. And 11, 11, 1, he again, 11, 11 through 16, he prophesies again about that second coming of Christ. We did it. Do you feel accomplished? That's the abbreviated, the cleft note version of the prophecies in 7 through 11. And now we can go to the good stuff. And I found so many good things in chapter 12. You know, my Bible calls chapter 12 the songs of praise. And I, I think it's pretty explanatory. I think it really explains what's going on there. You know, Isaiah could have written a funeral dirge at this point, right? Think about where this guy is living right now. Okay, he's not, he's not on the other side of this mess yet. He's right in the middle and this mess is just getting started, right? And he chose to write a song of praise and it focused on God's goodness and God's faithfulness instead of all this darkness and despair around him. I want you to turn to Isaiah 12 because I want to read this chapter to you. And I want you to follow along. I, I actually blew it up and put it in here because I can't read my Bible without my glasses. So I'm going to read it from here. It says, I will praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. 
I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength, and He is my song, and He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord. Call on His name. Make known among the nations what He has done and proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for He has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing of joy, people of Zion, for great is a Holy One of Israel among you. You see, I think Isaiah's song of praise... I'd like to call it his life song. Because, you know, it includes three things about his life right here in, in, in these short, few short verses. The first thing it tells us in verse 1, it tells us where he came from. It tells us that he was in sin. God was angry with him, but he was forgiven, and now God is comforting him. And number 2 in verses 2 and 3, it tells us where he stands. You know, it says five things really about him. It says he trusts God and he's not afraid. It says the Lord is his strength, the Lord is his song, the Lord is his salvation, and the Lord is his joy. Ladies, he didn't say, the Lord will be my song when all this mess is gone. He didn't say, this, the Lord will be my joy when I'm over there looking back at all this that he's done for me. He didn't say that at all. He said, he is my song. He is my joy. And he was standing in this dark, dark place when he was able to say this. That is huge. And the third thing he tells us in his story is where his future is. In the last few verses, he tells us because he believes in the promises of God, he knows with great assurance he's going to spend his future praising God. Here on earth, in the bad and the good, and when he goes on to eternity, be with God tells us where he's going to be. Ladies, this can be our song too. It's exactly what our song should be about, our own life song. In every age, God's people are faced with the choice of believing God and his promises or living their, facing their future with fear and dread. And, and read the news, I'm a news junkie. So I have to make the choice to believe God every single minute of my day. I should just turn everything off, but I thrive on news. You know, the headlines today could easily have come out of Ahaz's day, right? You read things like, there are alliances between four countries, foreign countries, and foreign countries at war, and world leaders striking deals on resources and weapons, and, and world leaders being assassinated. I even read one the other day that said, man shot over argument with french fries. Can you believe that? I laughed for 30 minutes after that. Now, that didn't come out of Ahaz's day, obviously. But it's crazy. There's crazy stuff going on all around us, everywhere. You know, as modern-day Christians, what does your life song say about you? You know, is it, is it a, song, a song of sadness and despair? Is it kind of a, an old love song that's kind of full of emotion but not a lot of depth? Or is it kind of like a twangy old country western song talking about doom and gloom and you got a bloodhound howling in the background? Or is it a little ballad that kind of tells about the hopelessness and despair going on around us? Or is it in the famous words of my precious little nephew, Christopher, when he was five years old, he gave me a violin concert. He's very accomplished. And he had his little violin under this arm and his little bow under this arm, and he stood very straight and tall, and he said, my next piece is full of movement and has a happy little melody. (laughs) Out of the mouths of babes! 
that's what I want my life to be. I want my life song to tell of all the ups and downs, but in the middle of it, I see all God's hand working all through it, and I'm praising Him all the way through it. That's what our life song should sound like. You know, I read a commentary by Matthew Henry, and he, he's an old talker, as my kids would say, but I thought it was really, really neat what he said. He said, Many Christians have God for their strength, who have Him not for their song. They live in darkness. But those who have God for their strength ought to make Him their song, give Him the glory of it, and take to themselves the comfort of it. I thought that summarized it completely. We should make Him our song. You know, we're not only singing our life song to Him, but everyone around us is constantly watching our life song and listening to it. You know, our testimony as a Christian is only believable if we actually live out what we say we believe. In other words, do our lyrics match up with our delivery? You know, in James 2, 17 through 18, it says, In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. In James 2.26, it says, As a body without the spirit is dead, faith without deeds is also dead. So the words to your, the lyrics to your life song, do they match up with your delivery? Or do they sound something like this? I found a little clip I thought you might find interesting. Let's see if we can get it. Happy birthday. <laughs> happy birthday. Oh, seriously. Is that what's going on in your life? Happy birthday. Ladies, what your life song should sound like is maybe this. How about this one? us at the top of his lungs. He's just screaming it out. That should be our life song. It should look like that. It should match up with the lyrics that we have in our song. You know, our actions have to prove that we're holding fast to the assurance that our God is with us and his promises will prevail. You know, there's a song by Casting Crowns, and it's called Life Song, appropriately enough. And I want to play this song, and I, I found a version of it that has the words on the screen. I want you to just put everything up, and I want you to watch this and listen. And the words absolutely are so profound. small sacrifice not joined with my life I sing in vain tonight may the words I say and the things I do make my life song sing bring a smile My life 
You see, ladies, hope and joy should be the characteristics of our life song. They should be the defining characteristics of our life song. And this is a joy that only comes when we trust God, even in the dark times, not just when we're looking back. And it's, it's a joy that we can't fake, right? Because when you get in those dark times, you're faking it. It's going to come out. You see, when our lyrics of our life song match up with our delivery, then and only then does our life become a living testimony of God's faithfulness. And there is no better way than this, ladies, than to worship your God. Please play with me. Father, I just, um, just thank you for each one of these ladies. I thank you for your word, and I thank you for their openness to your word. Father, I pray that these words would not go out void, but they would be applied to our lives. And Lord, that our life song would be one of joy and hope that the world around us can see and they know that we're living by faith. Father, I pray that my life song gives us, puts a smile on your face. In Christ's name I pray this. Amen.